before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Our sermon passage in New Testament reading is 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jamie, one of the pastors here. So glad that you are here if you're visiting. For those of you who are watching online, we give a digital salute to you. Hello, we're glad you're watching. And um, if you're visiting with us, we're starting a new series. We're looking at 1 John, uh, a letter that the apostle wrote. And we're talking about what's called fellowship with God. And when we talk about this topic, it's more than knowing about God, like facts. It's experiencing God. It's being with God, uh, walking with God at every moment of life. And so this is with God in the high points, but it's also with God in low points. But it's also being with God in everyday life, like when you wake up, when you eat your breakfast, when you go to work, when you interact with your friends, when you have recreation time, all of life is to be one of fellowship with God. Now, as we saw last week, um, particularly in chapter one, verse four, we are to enjoy this fellowship with God. And there we talked about the Trinity, the Godhead. We have one God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, forever existing, but not only forever existing, but perfectly enjoying one another in their fellowship. And God, who is triune, perfect in that love and fellowship, he invites us to enjoy that relationship that he has. And so what we saw is that this glory and love of God becomes central in our lives. If in fact, it's what we live for. And so this is why we want God always near to us. Now today we look at verses five through 10 and we see uh, these series of contrasts. We see light and dark, we see lies and truth. We see sin and then being cleansed from sin. And John, the apostle, he's, he's bringing up these contrasts to really ask you a question, to make a choice. Will you walk in the light? 
Will you uh, walk closely with God in fellowship with him? Now today we'll have three points. Uh, The first one is we'll look at contrast. What does it mean to walk in the light? The second point is confession. How do we walk in the light? And then the third point is cleansed. Why we can walk in the light. What's our big idea? It's this, since God is light, we are to walk in his light. Before we go further, would you pray with me? God, we pray asking that you would shine your light upon us right now, that we would see the Lord Jesus, that we would understand him as the light, but also how through his blood, we can now walk in the light because you have washed us, you have cleansed us, you have forgiven us. Lord Jesus, make my words to be your words. Would you open the ears of those who now listen or are watching online? God, we pray these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, uh, this contrast. When we talk about walking in the light, often you know, a person might say, okay, that means I need to just you know, be good, or I need to try harder to be godly. When we look at the text, when it talks about walking in the light, he's really saying um, it's really about having humility and devotion. So let's look into this. Again, we see these series of contrasts, uh, light, dark, truth, lies, sin, being cleansed from sin. And he's showing the difference of what it means to walk in the light versus walking in the darkness. So there's this contrast. Look at verse 5. The message you have heard from him, uh, we proclaim to you. What does he say? God is light, and there is no darkness at all in him. Now, when we see this, we need to back up and be a very rudimentary, if you will. We need to ask, well, what does it say, you know, about this message? He says, here's this message from him. Well, who's the him? Uh, The him in context is God, specifically Christ in the Godhead. And then what is the message of Christ? Very simply, it's the gospel. It's what we call the good news. This should be no surprise. Uh, Luke chapter 4, when the Lord Jesus begins his public, you know, earthly ministry, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and there in Isaiah 61, he quotes and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news. Then later in uh, Luke chapter 4, he says, Jesus says these words, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. And the beginning of Mark's gospel, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, believe the good news. And so what is the fundamental message of Jesus? It's the gospel. Now, what does the gospel then have to do with light and darkness? This is very important. For the good news to be good, we must see God as holy. For the good news to be truly good, we must understand and see how God is holy. Here in the text, when it says God is light, what he's saying is is God is holy. Um, In the Bible, we have these things called theophany. It's a big word, but it means when God makes an appearance to a person. And when God appears, often there is this light of holiness. And it's not just like the light that we see. This is like unapproachable light. This is light that is stunning and blinding. And so as soon as I say that, you might think of Acts chapter 9, when the apostle Paul is on the road to Damascus. And um, 
there he experiences a blinding light from heaven. And it's interesting because the text says this blinding light from Jesus shines upon him. Paul falls to the ground and then Jesus speaks to him. And so the light is what levels him, if you will. Let me give a couple more passages that are lesser known. In Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament, chapter 1, here the prophet has a vision and it's talking about this uh, heavenly person on the throne of God. And this is how he describes him. And upward from his waist I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And there was brightness all around him. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. So here is Ezekiel. He sees the Lord, and the Lord is in this unapproachable light, and he falls on his face. Let me give another one, Revelation chapter 1. So this is the Apostle John now having a similar vision of Jesus. This is how he describes him. The hairs of his head were white, like the white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him... I fell at his feet as though dead. (laughs) The light of God is his holiness. Now, this past fall, again, if you're visiting, um, this past fall we did a series of how does a holy God dwell with a sinful people. And one of the things we discussed is God's holiness is really his perfection. And so his holiness is his perfection in his beauty, in his knowledge, in his love, in his goodness. But also, his holiness is his perfection in his justice. And so what we saw is that even the smallest of sins, any infraction of his holy law, deserves punishment. Holiness demands that nothing can be swept underneath the rug. So then, bringing it back to the text, if God is light, how is this good news? This sounds actually kind of scary. And so what is John building here? What he's saying is, look, if God is not holy, then your mercy that you receive is not truly mercy. Let me give an example. When I was in my late teens, I had a friend and we would talk about God and uh, this friend, he would acknowledge and he would say, I know that God is real. I even acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for sins. I understand that people need to actually have faith in Jesus but I want to live my life the way I want to right now. And so I would push back on him and I would say, well, what are you gonna do? And he said, well, I'm just going to, you know, basically confess all my sins just before I die and then I'll go to heaven. Now there's some problems with that, isn't there? (laughs) Uh, One of the problems is that you don't know when you're gonna die and we would talk about that. And then the other more profound questions are this, would you really turn? I mean, if you're not turning now, what? do you think you're going to do that you'll turn then? But there's even a more fundamental problem with his belief and statement. It's this. He had the assumption that God is obligated to forgive. 
that somehow it's just God's job to forgive. Listen, the Bible teaches that God owes no one. Yes, God loves to forgive, but forgiveness is a gift, not an obligation. See, that's what makes mercy mercy. Mercy is free. It's unearned. It's given because God wants to give it. And we cannot just presume that he will, well, that's what he does when we die. He just forgives us. And so when the apostle is talking about walking in the light and he talks about the holiness of God, what he's getting at is this humility that's required. The humility says, I stand before a holy God and I fall short. I need mercy. And mercy is a gift and is unearned. John then continues this contrast in the passage and he addresses false claims of the heretics that were in the church. Remember, there's this group in this church that are believing some wrong things about God and ourselves. And one of them is they have false beliefs about sin. We read about these. Look at verse 6. If you say you have fellowship with God, but then you're walking in the darkness, you're lying. You're not practicing the truth. Verse 8. If you say you do not have sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. Verse 10, if you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar, and his word is not in you. What do we see here? There's a contrast. Walking in the darkness has this attitude about sin that says, I don't care. It doesn't matter. I'm going to do what I want to do. It's really not that bad. The contrast then is walking in the light. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Uh, I want his light to not only shine in me, but through me. And so walking in the light is living truthfully. It's walking a holy life. To put it differently, it's a devotion to God. Saying, God, I want to love you and love others as you command me. So walking in the light, what is it? On one hand, it's humility. God, you are holy. You're an unapproachable light. I can only approach you through mercy. But on the other hand, also, walking in the light is devotion, saying, Jesus, you are a worthy king, and I'm going to give you all of my life. So if that's what it is, well, what do we do with our sin, though? And that brings us to our second point, confession. To walk in the light with humility and devotion, it starts with confession. Um, this is more than saying, okay, I'm a sinner like everyone else. This is the ability to say, I am thoroughly sinful. Uh, I am one who was born in darkness, and I do deeds of darkness. My orientation is not for God and others, but my orientation is to love myself and to serve myself. It's all about me. And so sin is more than breaking rules. Sin is actually about breaking relationship with God and others. In the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, there we see that God created us for relationship with himself. God created us that we might know him, that we might enjoy him, that we might glorify him forever. And so listen, Christianity then is not just adopting rules for a better life, you know, being a better me. Christianity is actually enter, entering into a personal relationship with God himself. It's coming to God and walking with God. 
Uh, Pastor Smith, Clay and I were reading a, a, a book together, uh, just part of our personal spiritual development. And in that book, it gives some commentary from John Bunyan. And you know him, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the other famous Bunyan is Paul Bunyan, of course. Um, anyways, so he gives, a, he gives a commentary on John chapter 6, verse 47. And that verse says, all that the Father has given to me comes to me, and I will not cast them away. So this is the Lord Jesus speaking, and he says, all that the Father gives me comes to me, and I will not cast them away. And then he gives this commentary on the phrase, comes to me. Hear what he says. We do not come to a set of doctrines. We do not come to a church. We do not even come to the gospel. All these are vital, but most truly we come to a person, to Christ himself. That's what we do when we become a Christian. Doctrine's important, church is important, the gospel is the good news, but ultimately we come to Christ. And so when we are sinning, we are breaking that relationship with Christ. Look at our text, that's why it says in verse six, he says it is sin to break fellowship with God. So confession of sin is more than just saying, God, I'm sorry. Confession of sin is saying, God, when I sin, it is against you. I am breaking my relationship with my maker, with the one who created me to be with him. And so even the smallest of sins is turning against God. That's why sin is personal. It's a personal offense. Yes, it's a violation against his law, his commandments, but also it's more fundamentally a violation against him and his authority, his Godness in our lives. Now, we need to just make a quick note. That's why theologians say sin causes death. And that makes sense. Sin causes death of relationship. Sin causes death of our purpose. We're no longer living for the Lord. Uh, it causes death and fulfillment. We then turn to idols to try to find fulfillment in this hard world, but also it causes literal death. We who were made to be with God forever now die. And so this sin is very, very serious. Now, how do we know if we're confessing from the heart? Let's look again at those false views of sin in verses 6, 8, and 10. Look at verse 6. If you say you have fellowship but walk in darkness, you lie and you do not practice the truth. So what is a different way of saying this? This would be like a person who says, you know what? I know I did some wrong, but you know what? God understands. That's who God is. He's cool. <laughs> um, or it might be a person who says, you know what? At least I'm not as bad as other people. I can look at the news and I see the things that go on and I'm definitely not as bad as them. What does true confession look like in in light of verse 6, it would be saying this, God, you call me to be holy as you are holy, as you are holy and so I must put off all sin. I can't make excuses. I cannot blame shift. God, you call me to live as you are, and I have failed. Verse 8, if you say that you do not have sin or have not sin, you deceive yourselves and the truth is not in you. 
a way that we see that today is people will say, you know what, I look at the Bible and the Bible, it's just, it's too condemning, it's old fashioned. Um, the things that the Bible calls sin today, they're just really not sin. Culture's different today. And so particularly in regard to like sexuality, um, it's just, that's not sin. What we really need to do with the Bible is just kind of grow in our enlightenment. <laughs> we need to grow in learning how to basically love one another. What does true repentance look like? God, I don't need more enlightenment. I need rescue. God, it's not about me becoming a better person. It's about me being a forgiven and clean person before you. Verse 10. If you say you have not sinned, you make God a liar. And his word is not in us. I think ultimately this is the worst one because it's basically saying, God, you got it all wrong. And sometimes we do that. We say, God, you get it all wrong about who we are. Um, you don't really know me. You don't know my heart. I'm not that bad. See, I'm getting better. True confession would say this, God, I'm the liar, not you. Uh, God, I can't excuse my sin. I, I can't pretend it's not there. It's there. And this is what confession really looks like. And so confession is more than saying, God, I did some bad. God, my nature is bad. From birth, I have this sin nature, and it comes with abundance of sin. It is natural for me to walk in darkness. And what happens is, is when you have that type of confession, not just some kind of fake confession, but when you have this confession from the heart, it actually leads you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you're desperate and you're saying, Jesus, I stand before you full of sin, condemned, guilty. I need you to cleanse me. And when you see this Jesus who cleanses, then that becomes the motivation to walk in the light. And that's our third point, being cleansed. When we bring our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ, what does he do? He removes it completely. Now, um, this sermon series, we're gonna have some memory verses. And so in the foyer, we have some bookmarks like we did for the Titus series. And so we're gonna have three passages that we're memorizing, and then I'm just gonna introduce the first one today. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. And so it's small, but you can read that. And so what we're gonna to do together, I know it's a little bit awkward, but let me exercise my spiritual gift of awkwardness. Um, we're gonna read this together in unison, and then the goal is, is that we're actually going to memorize this. So let's read this together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Very good, thank you. Let's work through that very short verse. God is faithful. What does that mean? He keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. I love what he says in Joel chapter two. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a wonderful promise. When we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. I love what the psalmist says. Psalm 119, let your grace come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. God is faithful. But also God is just. <laughs> At a first read, we might say there's not much hope because you just got done saying we're, just, we're sinners and we deserve God's wrath justly. But what does the cross teach? 
At the cross, God justly punishes sinners through the death of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3 says it this way, Jesus died on the cross to pay our sins in full, that he might be both the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. When Jesus goes to the cross, he justly pays for the sins that are due to me. God is faithful and he is just. But also then, he forgives us our sins. And when we talk about forgiveness of sins, that means the debt is paid, the record is cleared. He sees you without sin. This is very important. Often we say, you know, in our circles, time heals old wounds. That's actually a lie. Uh, I find that time dulls old wounds so that we don't really think about them so much. But what often happens is that when we come to that person who has offended us, we do remember the offense. There's a grudge. We may not actually speak it out loud, but there's distrust. There's a wall. Friends, when we are in Christ, what it means to be forgiven is that that grudge is now gone. We are completely forgiven. God looks upon us as though we never did that sin because it's paid for completely in Christ. And so when we talk with God, when we interact with God, we're forgiven because he is faithful and just. And then it says he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Very simply, that means that he has purified us from our filth. Some of you know that we're in the middle of a home remodel. And uh, this past, or two weeks ago, um, what they did is they broke a big hole in our basement wall to put in an egress window. And even though we had plastic all around trying to contain this, there was concrete dust and then it's super fine and it just began to settle throughout the whole rest of the house, even though there was plastic containing that. That concrete dust is like sin. <laughs> it's everywhere. And even though you try to contain it, it still is there. Um, sin infects all parts. It's like a layer of grime. And what this passage is saying is when you have faith in Christ, every last sin, every dust particle, every violation, it's all removed. It's like that plastic was perfect and you're clean and it's done. Well, how does God do this? Look at verse seven. There it says, the blood of Jesus, the son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, as soon as we say this word blood, some people object and they say, this is what we talk about. The Bible's so barbaric. <laughs> this sin and sacrifice, blood and death. Now, someone might say, I understand that God is holy and you know, he has holy justice, but isn't there like another way? Isn't there a more loving way that God could forgive us? Well, we've already seen that time does not heal old wounds, at least not in a lasting way. Uh, we don't physically try to kill people, but we kill people with our attitude. We hold grudges, we have coldness, we're aloof. What's going on is we want justice, we want blood for the wrong that was suffered. And so we act like a judge and we try to punish others. The gospel says Jesus was the one who was punished for us. It was his blood that was shed upon the cross. And so it is his blood that only can heal in a lasting way. 
Jesus pays what we could not pay. And so if we remember that sin is deeply personal against God and others, when that blood covers the guilt, it not only covers the guilt, it covers the grudge. God no longer looks upon us as though we are enemies. The Bible says he now looks upon us as his very children, friends, those who he loves. What's amazing is how did Jesus do that? Jesus entered the darkness so that we can then enter the light. The Bible says that when Jesus died upon the cross for three hours, darkness came over all the land. What is that symbolic of? It's not just a symbol. Jesus is entering into the depths of hell, into the wrath of God. And so Jesus enters that darkness so that we might enter into that light when we believe upon him. God, who is an approach in inapproachable light, we can now approach through the grace of God. Now, how do we know that we're trusting this cleansing from Christ? Let me give some kind of application as we start to conclude. How do you handle sin? How do you handle failure in your life? You know, on the outside, a moral person and, if you will, a born-again Christian person, they can look nearly identical. Both people might, you know, be generous with their money, go to church, they're nice to other people, they try to budget their time so that they're being, you know, giving, they're a good person. But on the inside, there's a different story. See, a moral person is trusting in the confidence of their own goodness. Um, their confidence is based upon their performance, if you will. A Christian, though, where's their confidence? Not in their own performance, but in the performance of Christ. And so when a person has sin or even failure, a moral person handles it like this. Um, I gotta deny that this is really going on, or I'm gonna make excuses for my sin, or I'm gonna blame shift. It's really this person's fault for my wrongdoing. Or sometimes the moral person, when they sin, they're devastated. They're like, I can't believe I did this. And then they resolve, I'm gonna do better. And so the focus of the moral person is it's on consequences and not the relationship being restored. When the Christian sins though, they have no excuse. When the Christian sins, they can't blame anyone else. When the Christian sins, they don't deny it. Instead, they say, Jesus, this is why you died on the cross for me. And so the sin that they do, the very thing that's offensive to God actually leads them to God because they're saying, Jesus, forgive me, cleanse me, purify me. You who are faithful and just, wash me from this sin. And when the Christian is there, then they begin to see my relationship with God is restored. And so it's not about resolve, it's about repentance, turning to God. Do you repent in that way? Are you cleansed in that way? When you are cleansed in that way, then you see how much you are loved. And when you see how much you are loved, then that becomes that growing motivation for you to walk in the light. Let me conclude with some application questions. Is your life one that is marked by contrast? Meaning, are you walking in the light in contrast to the darkness of the world? There is so much darkness in this world. 
Are you putting on patterns of light and putting off patterns of darkness? Is your life marked by contrast, difference from the world? Another application question, do you regularly confess your sins? Are you confessing not just what people can see, but are you confessing from the heart, this is where my sin is coming from? Another question, is God's cleansing you, his saving you, does it propel you toward a joyful obedience? Is the good news truly good to you? And does it make you smile? Is the amazing grace amazing and is it making you live differently? See, this is what the gospel does. This is what it means to walk in the light and we only walk in the light because Christ entered darkness so that we can walk in that light through his grace. Do you long for the light of this Jesus? Do you long for it to shine in you and to shine through you? Because God is light, let us walk in his light. Would you pray with me? God, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, O take and seal it with thy spirit from above. Jesus, make your light, the light of your love, the light of your grace, to shine brightly upon us and in us and even through us. All to your glory, we pray in your name. Amen. We come now to a time of the Lord's Supper. And what a very tangible, if you will, tactile way of experiencing the fellowship with God. When we come to this meal, we eat of the bread, we drink of the vine. And Jesus says when we do these things, we're literally uh, feasting upon him in a spiritual sense, not a physical sense. And so in John chapter 6, Jesus talks about his... uh, body being given for us and his blood being shed for us. And he says these statements that really kind of rocked the world that he was in. He said, you need to eat of me. And people are like, cannibalism, not going to do that. But he says, if you don't eat of me, then you have no part of me. And what he's talking about, not a literal, you know, eating of him, but spiritually feasting upon him and saying, Jesus, I need you more than anything. You are my life. You're the center You're the one I want fellowship with more than anything else in this world. And so when we come to this meal, we call this a means of grace so that we would grow in our fellowship with God and that it strengthens our faith to see that God is for us and not against us. That Jesus is the one who entered the darkness so that we might be in his light. So when we come to this meal, we come remembering but also partaking in growing and enjoying. The Bible says that on the night that our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. What is required for this meal is faith. And so if you are here and you belong to Christ and you belong to his church, in other words, you've shown your faith to be genuine by coming to the church and saying, I believe, 
then we invite you to this meal to partake, to enjoy. Do you have to be part of Cornerstone? We do not require this. This is 